Помилуй нас, Боже, по великій милості Твоїй, молимось Тобі, вислухай і помилуй. In a small village six miles south of Kyiv, a Ukrainian military chaplain is praying amid rubble and debris over what used to be a family's home. Just a day earlier, a suspected Russian airstrike demolished the house and neighboring homes. The attack killed six people including a disabled 12-year-old girl, her mother, and her grandmother. They were all in a car that was just returning back to the house when the, when the airstrike happened. That's reporter Sudarsan Raghavan. He was in the village that day as people assessed the damage, and one of them was the little girl's father, Ihor Mozayev. And he and other family members were looking through the rubble trying to find any kind of documents, any kind of valuable items. They were searching for deeds to an apartment. They were also looking for passports, uh, as well as birth certificates. Uh, They were even looking for a bag of cash, they told me. Sudarsan says there was also a film crew there that day. They were sent by the military to collect evidence. They were there in part to comfort the family but also to document what had happened, to one day provide as evidence against Russia for potential war crimes at the International Court at The Hague. This has become a new front in Ukraine's war. And almost every day now, as the civilian casualties are mounting, the government here has been declaring these attacks war crimes. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 7th. Today, we take a look at whether what we're seeing in Ukraine could constitute war crimes, and if Russia could be prosecuted. We've seen very credible reports of um, deliberate attacks on civilians, which would constitute uh, a war crime. That's Secretary of State Antony Blinken on CNN's State of the Union. This week, he's been meeting with the leaders of Ukraine's neighbors, countries like Poland and Moldova, who have received the vast majority of the 1.7 million people who have fled in less than two weeks. Uh, we've seen very uh, credible reports about the, uh, the use of certain weapons. Uh, And what we're doing right now is documenting all of this, uh, putting it all together, uh, looking at it, and making sure that uh, as people and the appropriate organizations and institutions investigate whether uh, war crimes have been or are being committed, uh, that um, we can uh, support uh, whatever, whatever they're doing. The collection of reports could be used by the International Criminal Court, or the ICC. That's the body that would hold a trial to determine whether those crimes are being committed. We're now nearly two weeks into uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And according to the United Nations, more than 400 civilians have been killed already. That's foreign affairs writer Claire Parker. She's been reporting on these war crimes accusations leveled against Russia. And we've seen just from the ground these, 
you know, really gruesome images of civilian casualties, of the shelling and complete destruction of Ukrainian cities, and mounting evidence of the use of weapons that have triggered serious alarm among international observers and raised allegations that Russia could be committing war crimes. You know, the term war crime, it's used often, right? But what is actually a war crime? Like what actually constitutes a war crime? Yeah, this term is used kind of colloquially to describe a broad category of things that might violate international law in a conflict setting. But it actually has a kind of precise and technical definition that's established in a number of international statutes. And war crimes really is referring to how militaries conduct themselves um, or fighters conduct themselves over the course of of fighting a conflict um, and also in settings of occupation. And so some of the things that are listed as war crimes under this statute called the Rome Statute, which governs how war crimes are prosecuted at the international level, includes deliberately targeting civilians, as well as attacks that cause disproportionate civilian casualties relative to whatever the military goal was. And so that could be attacks on hospitals as well, schools, other key civilian sites. Those are also considered off-limits under the, the laws that govern war. So you've given us this list of examples of things that constitute war crimes. In the conflict in Ukraine, what has the Russian military been accused of that would qualify as a war crime? Sure. So first, I mean, that determination of what qualifies as a war crime is pretty tricky to make. But some of the things that various human rights groups or world leaders have pointed to that potentially could be war crimes are the shelling of civilian areas with, you know, large concentrations of residential buildings, kind of unclear what the military targets sometimes are. Human Rights Watch has documented the use of cluster munitions, which are banned under an international treaty, but Russia and Ukraine are are not part of that treaty. So the use of them, these weapons themselves here isn't necessarily a war crime, but Various groups and and observers are arguing that because they're so indiscriminate in their nature and they've left such a, a trail of casualties in their wake, that that could be considered a war crime if Russia did not take steps to minimize civilian harm. What exactly is a cluster munition? Like, why is that so controversial as a weapon? So a, a cluster munition is basically a there's a missile or a projectile or or bomb that explodes and releases a bunch of other little bomblets or um, explosives. And those fall kind of scatter all over the place. And some of them explode on impact, but others don't. And so that's what makes them, them really dangerous because basically, A, they're indiscriminate by nature. They're just kind of flying everywhere. So they could land, they could land in a military target. They could land in a, in a playground. And some of them don't explode, which means that they basically become like landmines. So, you know, five years from now, somebody, a kid might accidentally step on one and and ignite it. So that's why they've drawn particular alarm among international observers. Claire, I wonder how this situation differs from others where we've seen a lot of civilian deaths. Like what might make the attacks here war crimes if maybe similar attacks elsewhere aren't war crimes? There's a whole 
slew of, of really horrible things that can happen in war and, and lead to to civilian casualties that are not war crimes because they're targeting, you know, military objectives. So that could be a site used by the military or equipment or something like that, but surrounded by civilians. And basically, whenever you have urban warfare, like we're seeing here, it's kind of impossible, people would argue, to avoid civilian casualties. But I think the question is proportionality and also intent. One thing that this would require proving if to bring a case that war crimes are being committed here is is either an intent to target some of these civilian sites that have been reportedly hit, like, you know, preschool, hospital, the site near a, a Holocaust memorial in Kyiv, or this sort of harder argument about proportionality. So is the military goal worth all this, the civilians that are killed? And that's a really hard determination to make with no clear definition. So how is evidence actually gathered as to whether any country or any person commits a war crime? Sure. So the the main relevant body here is the International Criminal Court, which was established in 2002 to prosecute individuals, including commanders who are responsible for, for war crimes, along with crimes against humanity and genocide. And the ICC has has already said um, last week that they are opening an investigation into potential war crimes being committed in Ukraine, going actually all the way back to 2013, covering the, the fighting that we're seeing now, but also the kind of long conflict in, in eastern Ukraine between Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed separatists. And what that body can do, basically, so... Ukraine and Russia are, are actually not parties to the court, so neither can basically go to the court and try to pursue an investigation themselves, but other countries can refer the situation in Ukraine to the court. And that's what happened last week. We saw several dozen countries ask the court to investigate um, what was going on in, in Ukraine and to help determine if any war crimes were taking place. So the ICC will investigate. We've also seen um, human rights groups like Human Rights Watch um, and Amnesty International try to to document some of these reports about the shelling of, of Kharkiv, for example, which is Ukraine's uh, second largest city, as well as other alleged uses of cluster munitions in other parts of the country by Russian forces. So a kind of a number of avenues exist for, for documenting and collecting evidence. And an important thing to mention here, too, um, which my colleague Sudarsan Raghavan wrote about over the weekend, is that Ukrainian officials are also launching efforts to try to document evidence of, of war crimes. So they're actually sending videographers to basically the sites, the aftermaths of Russian strikes to to interview people to collect video evidence of, of the rubble, basically, of destroyed houses or other targets that seem like they were are civilian areas that maybe should not have been hit. After the break, why it's important to gather evidence of war crimes, even if it's hard to hold anyone accountable. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. 
and when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on Season 4 of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So given that Russia is not party to the International Criminal Court, how would a war crime violation even get enforced? Right. So enforcement is the tricky part. It doesn't really matter that Russia is not party to the court in terms of bringing a case against war crimes because it's about where the, the territory is that it's happening and Ukraine has accepted the court's jurisdiction over its territory in the past. So it's possible to to try to charge Russian officials, but the problem is actually getting a hold of them. And basically, the experts that I talked to said, you know, as long as as long as Putin remains in power and and some of the Russian um, commanders or officials who might be charged don't go to countries that would hand them over to the court, it would be very hard to actually get anyone to to stand trial for these crimes. I see. So, for anyone to actually be held accountable if the court were to determine that war crimes were committed by Russia, one of those individuals, presumably a Russian official or Putin himself, would have to leave Russia and somehow be intercepted elsewhere, right? Right, or voluntarily go to stand trial, which seems highly unlikely as long as as long as long Putin remains in power. But, you know, some of the experts I talked to said it's not in- absolutely inconceivable that there could be a change of regime in Russia down the line and that later on um, some officials might be prosecuted. So that's one possibility. And another point that they made, which I thought was interesting and important to think about in all of this is even if it's not possible to um, hold officials accountable for war crimes, the just act of collecting evidence and compiling this dossier basically of of evidence about um, what occurred can be really important in shaping the narrative of of what happened and showing the truth of, of what happened, particularly when you have all of these false counter narratives that Russian officials are putting out about uh, the course of this conflict um, within Russia. And there's very little, you know, independent media there. So having just this this historical record can be really valuable in terms of countering attempts to to perpetuate false narratives about the conflict. Claire Parker is a foreign affairs writer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Renny Svernovsky and Alexis Diao. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.